A good moral character has the first essential in a man. It is therefore highly important that you should endeavor not only to be learned, but virtuous. The words of President George Washington. And this is The Guardians of the Republic. Hello, I'm Patrick Murray from the Monmouth University Poll, and my co-host is Ian Kahn from the TV series Turn, Washington Spies. On this episode of the podcast, we look at the challenges facing the Republic in the new year. We'll cover news of the week in our hot take segment and wrap with our Guardian of the Week segment. Please make sure to subscribe and give us a rating in your favorite podcast app. And please note, unfortunately this week, I'm going to be on my earbuds uh, because I had a microphone malfunction right before the show. So we're just going to push on through and make the best of it. So first, Patrick, let's talk about the challenges to the Republic this week. Well, I think we should start with uh, the situation that's going on in in Iran. Uh, And uh, there are some real interesting uh, comparisons uh, that are being brought between what's going on with President Trump and what happened with President Bill Clinton back in 1998 when he actually uh, launched an airstrike in Iraq Yep. Uh, in uh, right before the House voted, uh, was going to, to vote and, and discuss his impeachment uh, charges. Uh, there's some differences there. Uh, it, his airstrike, uh, Clinton's strike, was a- against a, new, a weapons facility. It had the support of the British and other allies in the Middle East. So there are some differences. We can argue about the motivation of the timing, uh, but the, the timing is interesting. This, of course, was a, an assassination of, of a leader is a different uh, in terms of what happened there. Are you sure? Now, Patrick, wait, I'm going to stop you for a second. Are you really gonna, sure that you want to lead and say that it's an assassination? Because that has become kind of a, a, you know, a touchy subject here in America. Do you consider it an assassination? Uh, yeah, I, I think I mean, I'm just looking at the technical definition of the word assassination, mm-hmm. which is that you have pointed to and t- taken out and killed a world leader. That is yeah. the dictionary definition of assassination. I am not saying whether that person should have been taken out or shouldn't have been taken out. I'm not making an argument about it, but it's a quite different type of thing than when you're when you're targeting a military facility than when you're saying we're going to kill Indeed. this one person. So that's what. So I'm using the word assassination in its purely strictly dictionary definition there, and not mm-hmm. making any judgment about whether this person deserved it or not. Um, but you know that led to. A discussion about whether we should be, uh, whether we're getting into a war, whether that was appropriate or not. Uh, what do you think about the the arguments that we're hearing, particularly from members of Congress, on that? Well, I think it was one of the most fascinating moments that happened yesterday, where Senator Mike Lee, after he and the rest of the senators were briefed by Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, CIA, um, where he came out, and this is the Republican. Mike Lee from Utah came out and argued vociferously against how the administration is handling this situation, saying, because basically one of the things that he objected to, the thing I think he objected to the most was that the the administration was sort of calling upon the senators not to have any debate about yeah. this. Well, let's, sort of just, let's listen to that because uh, I think it's really telling because we haven't had a a Republican, I think, speak quite in this way about this type of thing. Exactly. I had hoped and expected to receive more information outlining the legal, factual, and moral justification for the attack. I was left somewhat unsatisfied on that front. Uh, The briefing lasted only 75 minutes, whereupon our briefers left. 
This, however, is not the biggest problem I have with the briefing, which I would add was probably the worst briefing I've seen, at least on a military issue, in the nine years I've served in the United States Senate. What I found so distressing about that briefing was that one of the messages we received from the briefers was, do not debate, do not discuss the issue of the appropriateness of further military intervention against Iran. And that if you do, you'll be emboldening Iran. The implication being that we would somehow be making America less safe by having a debate or a discussion about the appropriateness of further military involvement against the government of Iran. So that was pretty strong words yeah. from him on on the quality of the information that he was getting. Now, uh, there, there are two parts to this, and we want to get into the, the part about the umbrage that he took about the debate. But it suggests to me that if you're hearing this from a Republican senator, and in fact, uh, we just heard two, on Thursday morning, Mike Lee went after Marco Rubio, who Marco Rubio seemed to uh, give plaudits to the briefing. Uh, and Mike Lee said, we're not listening to the same thing here, uh, is that this was obviously something different than a normal military action that is taken and planned. Uh, so I think that sort of came through. But the directive that he gave, that, that he was given by yes. the briefers, that, hey, everybody has to be on the president's team. It's something that we've been talking about all along. That yes. This has been this cultish environment that the, the Republican Party has kind of ceded itself to the uh, the party of Trump to be the party and step in line with Trump. And Mike Lee was really unhappy with that. Yeah, to see to see a Republican, I must have watched the video of that um, those remarks five times yesterday because it was absolutely fascinating. It was like watching someone leave a cult, really, at least for the moment. You know, he may very well get back on board with President Trump and with McConnell and the whole thing. But yesterday, to say that this was the worst briefing in nine years in the Senate, that counts during President Obama's time as well. And for Mike Lee to come out and slam President Trump, uh, even though he, you know, he couched it at the beginning. Well, wait, wait, wait. He, he didn't. He did, yeah, he didn't slam President right. Trump. He slammed mm. the briefers. Now, <laughs> yes, now the question is, how can you separate those? But he did say, and we've got to make sure we're clear. He did say at the very beginning. Yes, he gave a saying. lot of a lot of caveats, right? Yes, he did. But 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 when you got him, you know, he he spoke without reservation. I mean, he he was not being careful enough. If you're living in the world of Donald Trump and in a Trumpist world, this was unacceptable, really, based on what he did. And then to for have him then that evening go on Fox News and take shots at Lindsey Graham, who took shots at, at Mike Lee, then for him to sleep on it and again take shots at Marco Rubio, you're starting to see some cracks um, in in the Republican Party, at least in this situation. I mean, Rand Paul coming out and objecting is not a terrible surprise. Mike Lee has also shown this before in other, you know, with enge foreign engagements. He's very careful when it comes to this. So it's not completely new. But the language and the the passion with which he brought it was yeah, fascinating. Was something. So I, I want to go back to what he said uh, before that clip that we played, which were the caveats. One of the things he did say about President Trump from his point of view, was that President Trump has been uh, the least likely, uh, the most conservative about going into battle, about putting troops in harm's way. 
And he said he's like that about President Trump. And then he talked about this briefing and it just blew his mind. Now, so the question for me is, is he thinking that these military leaders are just leading President Trump down the primrose no, path? Or, no. Or, I mean, well, this is... No. I'm, I'm he's asking, just, how, he's do, covering. how do you know? How can you say no? Do you think... Because I, I, he's covering his butt. That's what I think he's doing. He's just covering his butt because he, he knows he cannot go after Trump, but he's going out. It's almost like he's going after his proxy, right? Right. I mean, because he's saying, no, the president, the president's good, good president. All people working for president bad right now, like really bad. But, you know, to say after 75 minutes, you just leave and to tell me and the other 99 senators that we're to keep our mouths shut. That is constitutionally dangerous is essentially what he's saying. Oh boy, what a what a what a what a what a shock! Yeah, I mean that but really. But his his argument fun. his argument works if the feeling is it was these military leaders who pushed President Trump into thinking that that assassination of Soleimani was the best option yeah, for whatever was happening. It's and, quite clear, and that it wasn't. Was- but. It seems from the other reports that we're getting yes. that that was not the best option. And that option was just thrown in as to show, well, here's the, here, here's the, here's the bizarre option. So take one here's of the crazy options. thing. Here's the crazy thing that you could do if you wanted to do something insane. Of course, you're not going to do that. You're not going to kill Soleimani because we know that that would cause ridiculous problems in the region. But that's like the worst thing you could do. And then there's this and this and this and this. And then it's quite clear that President Trump was the one who made this call. And it had something to do with Benghazi. It had something to do with not trying not to look as weak in the region as President Obama, he feels, looked through the Benghazi uh, experience. Yeah, my, my, my question uh, uh, for Lee is, though, what, what does he think actually happened in, that, in the decision room, you know, in the situation room where they made that decision? It wasn't the situation room, though. It was the Mar-a-Lago room, bro. Yeah, I mean, it it wasn't the situation room where this was decided. This was decided on in the nineteenth. But is his feeling that the military uh, leadership, when presenting the options to Trump, falsely presented this as a as the optimal plan? And as I said, we're getting reports that suggest that that was it was quite the opposite or that, you know, he's blaming them for putting that in front on, on Trump's plate at, at the very least. Yeah, I um, think he's I think he's because, just because in the end, it's, it's Trump's decision. That's what. So what I'm saying is I'm, yeah. I'm putting out these kind of uh, devil's advocates arguments with with the knowledge that saying at the end, it's President Trump's decision to do this. Mm-hmm. And you can't, if, if you're saying that, well, they shouldn't have done that knowing how president Trump thinks, then you've just answered your own question is this guy should not be president then if that's how he thinks. Well, yes. Yeah. And, but, but what he's basically doing is he's punching up as hard as he can without punching all the way to the top. But he's, he later said in this seven minute screed, which I really do recommend people watching. I mean, if, if you want to see a Republican sort of speak truth to power for five minutes, seven minutes, he's speaking it. He's pissed off, man. And what he says at the end is, I'd like to speak to President Trump about this, right? Well, he's going to speak to President Trump or someone from President Trump's office. And then what you see is you see Lou Dobbs that evening. And this was particularly galling to me. Come out and call him Benedict Arnold and yeah. start taking shots, which is why you see Republicans so scared to take a stand against the president. 
because his proxies, back to these ideas of Iran and proxies that we're dealing with right now, the, the Iran's proxies all over the region. Well, President Trump has his proxies here in America. And Fox News, Fox Business, you know, Lou Dobbs coming out and calling a Republican senator who's been on his side the whole time, a Benedict Arnold, the greatest traitor that our country has ever known. Shocking. And and yet not surprising. I'm just I'm just flabbergasted by that Lou Dobbs thing because of course totally under does not show any comprehension of the whole Benedict Arnold story in comparing uh, uh, Senator no. Mike Lee to the, to him. But the thing that I think that you and I really hooked into and, and certainly made me perk up my ears was that Lee was not just talking about this as a senator or as a uh, who felt that his position as a senator was undermined because of of this silly briefing that they got or this this in, inconsistent or uh, inadequate briefing that they got. He went on to make the argument that this is absolutely antithetical to constitutional norms. And that's, that's why what we're I, talking about. I thought <laughs> this is this is this is the crux of it. Somebody finally somebody in the Republican Party has said something like that. I find it insulting and I find it demeaning to the Constitution of the United States to which we've all sworn an oath. It is, after all, the prerogative of the legislative branch to declare war. Article 1, Section 8 makes that very clear. Alexander Hamilton in Federalist Number 69 made clear that this was a sharp contrast from the form of government that we had prior to the Revolution, a form of government in which the executive, the king, had the power to take us to war. He did not need the, the parliament to weigh in on it, to support it. That was the parliament's job after the fact, after we had gone into war. This, Hamilton explained in Federalist 69, is exactly the reason why this power was put in Article 1, Section 8, in the branch of government most accountable to the people at the most regular intervals. This is fabulous and so very important and exactly what is necessary when we get into the impeachment question as well. Because when you start talking about constitutional norms being broken and President Trump being at the head of the spear of that in every way, that's how change might actually happen. That's how the republic might actually be protected. That's why both of us agree this is so very important what happened last night. Yeah, yeah and listeners will know that, I, that I've always been very reticent to give uh, pats on the back to Republicans who have come out and said things uh, against uh, Donald Trump or you know have expressed some doubts about what was going on because it, it never seemed really grounded in anything other than discomfort. Uh, you know, Lee laid out a very cogent argument that is based in exactly why we've been doing this podcast is what are the constitutional norms? Why do they exist? They exist to protect the Republic. They exist to allow the Republic to be strong. And when you break those norms, and we even had uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders on TV on Thursday morning saying uh, that, well, well we sh the Congress shouldn't be taking these powers. The president should have these powers. And it's so totally showing absolutely no understanding of the Constitution. Or care for the Constitution. You know, I'm thinking about it that Lou Dobbs, if he was really clever, instead of comparing him to Benedict Arnold, should have compared him to General Lee. Yeah, I was thinking that too. Charles <laughs> Lee, right? yeah. yeah, Charles Lee in the Battle of Monmouth. He said, we've gone from, you know, we've gone from General Charles Lee to Senator Mike Lee, and you guys are very similar, and you're opposing the, you know, the general and the leader of your country. That actually would have made more sense. I still would have argued it for sure. 
Um, but you know, there's a, there's a, a, a funny little thing there, but let's, let's move on now into the same within the same topic of how the Republic is being challenged this week to talk about where the impeachment trial is standing right now. And we talked about on our last show before the break, Larry tribe and tribes law, um, and his action of helping Nancy Pelosi choose to delay giving over the articles of impeachment over to the Senate. Uh, how do you believe that the delay has done its job? Uh, I think yes and no. I mean, yes, in the sense that it's it's given more time uh, to try to look for things. Of course, we had the holiday break, so there wasn't a lot going on. And I still think we need some more information. And the last that we heard from Nancy Pelosi as we were recording this is that she says she will hand the articles over soon, but won't mm-hmm. commit to a date because she still says we need to know what the trial is going to look like. And I think that's worked. I think that's that's worked. The argument that has has been made against her is that the, the articles say that every day, basically they say, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, every day that Trump is in office is an, another day that's a threat to the Constitution and to the national, our national security. And so the argument can be made that the longer that you hold this up, then, then, what do you, then what's the threat all about? And so I think... There's there's something to that that I think is making some Democratic senators a little nervous. Yeah, that's the shift that's happening right now. I mean, when you have Chris Murphy and you have Dianne Feinstein and you have Blumenthal, Senator Blumenthal coming out sort of saying, OK, let's move it over now. Uh, it, it does begin to change the dynamic, certainly. However, I definitely think the delay did its job. One, just in giving that breath. And just giving those couple of weeks where he is impeached and there's no guarantee of what's going to happen in the Senate. If those articles had been transmitted immediately and it was in Senator McConnell's hands, it would feel like a fait accompli, especially after what he said on Hannity right before the break, where he's talking about, you know, we're in lockstep with with the White House. Just extending this period, I think to me, has helped bring John Bolton forward. And I have a theory about why John Bolton is coming forward. And also with Christianity Today, the editorial that came out uh, right around Christmas, which was calling for a very, very important evangelical magazine that's been around that was started by Billy Graham, um, the editor-in-chief coming out with that op-ed, basically saying that President Trump should not be in office and that evangelicals. I actually believe that just that time over that break, as the new year was coming, the holidays, the idea that he's been impeached and there's no final answer. I think it was. I think it worked. I think that uh, Larry Tribe's idea and Nancy Pelosi's choice so far has worked. I do think there is some danger well, if she holds it for too long. Yeah. Let's. Well, let's take. Uh, I want to come back to how long is too long, but let's take the two that things that you just mentioned here. First, Christianity Today. So let's let's talk about that. Uh, so yes, we had one uh, one evangelical publication come out and say he should be impeached. Uh, an important one. And a, 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 a noteworthy one. I don't know yes. whether we use the word important. Noteworthy because it was founded by, or one of the founders was more than that, Billy, Billy More Graham. than that, in the evangelical world, it is still, con- before this, it was considered an important magazine. It's not some relic from the 60s. It still holds sway to this day. That That's what I'm told by my evangelical friends. Right. But then who you were bunch- shocked by it. Right. And I, I think that was shocking because that it just happened. But then you had a counter push from other evangelical mm-hmm. publications uh, against that. So it's an, it was interesting and noteworthy, but d- d- how much did it really move the ball 
among evangelicals is my question. What are your two percent? Two percent. I would say two percent, three percent, two to three percent. But but look, I remember when we were talking about this back in July and August, and we were at, I was advocating that that it really it should come from the evangelical Christian world. Like, how can you look at what the president, how the president handles himself, how he deals with things, children on the border, things like that. The, the, the idea being that once the first one cracks that wall, the dam starts to break. It's the same concept that we have with Mike Lee. It's the same concept that we're talking about with John Bolton, who is ready to come forward. But All right, I'll so wait to get to that. Yeah, no, no. Let's let's move on to John Bolton, um, because I have some questions about. So you, you seem pretty positive about it. I'm still a little quizzical about whether this is good or bad. What do you th- why do you think this is? OK, here's. I heard a theory. I don't know if I heard a theory, but no, I think I heard this theory that makes a tremendous amount of sense to me. He wants to write a book. In that book, oh, we should in- re- remind our listeners, you know, who John Bolton is in the context of the Trump administration. Uh, so he was Trump's national security advisor. Uh, had a falling yeah. out uh, over the direction. John Bolton is known as a hawk, the hawkiest uh, of the hawks. hawkiest of hawks. You know, get let's get you know America should to spread its might across the world and con- and control the world that way. Uh, and he left the Trump administration because he just didn't feel like he was getting a, a fair hearing. Obviously, he knows about what happened in Ukraine. He knows about all the, and many other things that we don't know about yet. He legitimately knows where metaphorically the bodies are buried on that, on that subject. I mean, he, from what everyone and all of the witnesses who did come forward, it always went back to John Bolton and that John Bolton said, you know, look, go talk to the lawyers because what's going on here is wrong. Right. So, okay. So here's my theory about Bolton or the theory that I heard to be fair, that I agree with. And I think is smart. John Bolton his big plan is he's not going to have another job in Republican politics for a while. It's going to take a while because his his breakup with Donald Trump was uglier than most. Mattis came out and, you know, when Madison Trump broke up, it was it was amiable. Right. <laughs> it was OK. Let's all let's all get along here. But when when the other when 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 the flip side happened, when it was Bolton who who broke up, this was ugly. This was a nasty little divorce. Well, now John Bolton's going to be out of Republican politics, not have much of a job, but he's going to write a book. And that book is actually going to sell a lot of copies. and He's going to make a good amount of money and buy himself a nice house on the hill overlooking uh, overlooking the lake. Turns out that the administration isn't going to let him write a lot of that book because he's they're going to say that most of it is classified mm-hmm. because that book is going to have to go through the administration before it's allowed to be published, as we saw with other books. Well. If John Bolton can't write his book because it's all classified, what's the way to get it unclassified? To speak it out in testimony. Then all of a sudden, it's not classified anymore. It's public knowledge, and he can write that book. I think that's what shifted for him, that financially, it actually makes sense for him now to get out and speak. That is a fascinating, a fascinating hypothesis. Uh, So let's... uh, Let's move on from that. Let's, you know, for whatever the reason is, he's willing to speak. The question yes. is, do we really think we know what he's going to say? I, I don't think he's going to, he's a lawyer. He's not going to perjure himself in front of the Senate. He's going to tell the truth. So why not have him come in front of the House Judiciary Committee? Since I'm all for that. The articles, well, the, the House doesn't seem to be interested. The Democrats in the House don't seem interested in calling him there. Well, it feels like what they want to do is they want to keep extreme pressure using Trump's idea with Iran um, on the Senate. 
and on the different um, on the different senators who are in battleground states, the Cory Gardner's of the world. How are you going to vote? Will you let Bolton vote? Will you let Bolton speak? It's 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 very political, obviously, and and we're we're in the 2020 election. It's going on right now. Yeah, we should talk about you know right now as it stands, it looks like they're going to have something very close to the rule, same rules that they had for the Clinton trial, mm-hmm. which is I think it was 24 hours. Each side got 24 hours of testimony or 24 hours in total. I don't remember what of rehashing the testimony that they got from the House. After, and then there's a response from the president and his team. And then after that, they get to vote on individual uh, witnesses that they want to bring into the Senate. Now, in tr- Clinton's trial, these were recorded behind closed doors, and only certain people got to be present. So if Bolton does this, it's not like we will necessarily see him in action or even really hear anything more than a, a couple of clips of what his testimony was, Although, which is why back, it makes more sense to me to have him in the House. But the question then that raises for me is, are the Democrats worried that he might not be the witness that they want? Look, if, if John Bolton comes out and decides, because here's the flip side of my concept about the book. The flip side is, he says to Trump, if you, if you start a war with Iran, I'll come and save you because then you're actually doing the kind of work that I want you to do as president, right? Is that possible that that happens? Okay, yeah, it is possible. I think it's worth the risk. I think just getting John Bolton up there to answer questions, whether it be in the House or the Senate, is fully, I think it's going to do the job to help save the republic. Yeah, it's it's an interesting and your hypothesis about his motivation is interesting, too. And it just reminds me when we go and think back to the foundation of our republic, there were a lot of bad actors uh, (laughs) who are involved in that and uh, a number of them on the right side. You know, they were doing it for self-motivation. And one of the things that we do have to remember is at the end of the day, there are people whose motivations may not be pure, but can serve a purpose towards a greater end. John Bolton may end up being one of them. Yeah, I I think so, based on this. Now, real quick, let's just get into the fact that there's still only going to be two articles of impeachment. You you expressed that you were still concerned about that, that you think that it's going to be too small. What's your your reasoning behind that? Yeah, and I think this delay is part of why I'm thinking that, is that, Okay. okay, so the delay was he did these things, and again, his presence in office is a threat to national security. That's the, that's the claim of the articles. But if you're sitting on these two things for this long and nothing else comes up, then you can counter that by simply saying, well, why, he isn't an, a, an ongoing threat because you haven't come up with anything else that he's done like this. So, And that's why the narrowness is a problem, is that that's why I think you do need, if the, 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 the delay is going on, you do need to come up with something else that says, see, what did we tell you? Well, maybe, Bolton, maybe the, who knows, maybe the Soleimani thing could turn out based on what we heard from Mike Lee. Maybe, but I think, I actually think the Bolton is more than enough that to, to have come out during this, during this break. Uh, but I also think that if you brought back some of the other stuff from, from the Mueller investigation in, in a way, because Trump is really good at, you know, publicity and promotion, he, they would sort of, sort of say, well, you're relitigating the same story all over again. 
So I, I think the narrowness is is actually kind of important and I think valuable because it's just going to be like, look, this is the story. This is what happened. And let's see the Republicans in the Senate go along with things just the way the Republicans in the House did. And let's see if that actually is how things end up. So let's just ask this now. Where Where is the patient now, Patrick? We've We've been on break for two weeks. We're back. A lot has changed. Where do you think the Republic stands? I think the patient is stable, but not responsive yet you know, we're, like, we're, keep, we're keeping the, we're keeping the patients we're, we're, we're keeping the patients sedated for right now oh, <laughs> and the vital man. signs are looking okay for the time being oh my god no i don't know man i think mike lee I, to me that's a heartbeat for me mike lee is a heartbeat this week um christianity lay is a heartbeat john bolton is the pulse quickening um they're they're and also, you know, I, I, I mean, let me, know. let me, let me be clear. I mean, I, that, that, that analysis that I gave or assessment that I gave is better than I felt it was a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Just not as far, still. I think maybe than you are. I still am very, very much pessimistic because again, what I keep thinking of is after this is all said and done and this is over, have we won any of the public back to saying, oh, oh my God, what have we done to ourselves? Well, okay. That's fair. But uh, to me, the patient is better off now than it was two and a half weeks ago. Um, I also, you know, we, we, we don't talk about Trump and his, you know, his, his way very often in terms of the speech that he gave. It was yesterday morning. You know, that was a strange speech, man. To, to have him slurring his words in that way, it was, it, it was disconcerting. And, you know, talking about, here's the one thing I'd like to say to the president and to the people around him. Whatever it is that makes you talk like that, stop doing it. Because when you talk like that, it, it makes me it makes everybody scared that you don't have control over yourself. And he only seems to do it in really big spots where he's giving a big speech. Because today he was out speaking in front of a labor group, um, you know, mm -hmm. and he's speaking fine. None of the slurring and the you know, none of that happened. So you know, I so, I so what you're saying is when he's in situations where being president requires you to make really tough choices and think about the implications and the consequences of your actions, he doesn't do so well. No, <laughs> when, he, when he doesn't have to care yeah. about the consequences, then he does well. I think that's. Yeah. I, th I think that in and of itself is telling. All right, so let's move on. Usually we go to polling right after the top of the show where we start with Washington, but because of everything that's going on, we did a, we did a push um, and we're, we're going to get into polling right now. So Patrick, you have a new poll coming out today from Monmouth University. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Yes. Yeah, so uh, it's the New Hampshire Democratic primary. And one of the things that we're finding is that, you know, we're basically looking at a four-way race right now. Uh, we have Buttigieg, Pete Buttigieg at 20% New Hampshire. And he's followed close behind. And by close behind, I mean, it's basically a tie. Joe Biden at 19%. Bernie Sanders at 18%. Elizabeth Warren at 15%. Uh, you know, Buttigieg and, and Sanders have gone up since we last polled there in September. Biden and Warren have gone down. Klobuchar is at 6%, which puts her outside the top four, but somebody to keep an eye on if there's a stumble in Iowa. Uh, that voters are starting to take a closer look at her as an alternative if they need to go in that direction. So that's what we got out of New Hampshire. But another poll that we released earlier this month that I think is or earlier this week which I think is, is worth talking about just for a second, is that, you know, you, for 
folks who out there, you know, you pay attention to what's going on in this Democratic primary and, and you read the pundits and the, and the media reports about who's too left, who's too right. We actually did a poll that asked people exactly how do they couch their vote? How do they come to their vote? Is it about ideology and issue stands or is it about something else? And we found that we have an incredible mix of people who make their decisions. Uh, so we have about less than half, just under half, who make their decision based purely on ideology, you know, whether the person's a moderate, progressive, or conservative. Then we have other voters, uh, more than one in four, who say, I look at their resume first. Are they, are they experienced? Or alternatively, are they a political outsider? And then we've got another one in five who say uh, that I don't really have one thing in particular. The reason why I'm bringing this up and not, I'm not going too deep in the numbers, but the reason why I'm bringing this up is that the punditry just tends to simple, oversimplify. And they tend to talk about moderate, liberal, conservative. And that's not how most voters make their decisions. And that's why you can see some voters who are right now looking at both Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. And we're hearing a lot of talk about that. Uh, and that's because those, those two people represent kind of a working class uh, mentality that appeals to voters who don't care as much about ideology and positions. So those are the things that you should be paying attention to uh, when you're looking at these polls, that they don't all go along this one simple dimension of uh, liberal versus conservative. Okay, that's very interesting stuff. Thank you. And um, all right, now let's move on to our hot take segment. And this is where this week we're going to do 60 seconds to discuss different items in the news. And when you hear this sound, it's time to move on to the first, to the next, rather. First up, what do you think, Patrick, of this Buttigieg surge? Well, it's real. Uh, so not only have we seen it in our New Hampshire poll today, we've been seeing it in a bunch of other polls over the past few months. And it's coming from all different directions. Uh, so it's coming from people who want somebody who's liberal, want somebody who's conservative, want somebody who's experienced, want somebody who's, who is fresh. Uh, Pete Buttigieg can be all things to all people. And that's where his support is coming from. What do you think about him? Uh, well, so, you know, 20, 20% is really strong in New Hampshire. He's doing great in Iowa. What it tells us is that the more the people get to see and spend time with Mayor Pete Buttigieg, the, the higher they hold him and the higher esteem. The issue for Mayor Buttigieg is really this, the African-American vote. I, you know, is he going to be able to hold any any support in that community? And right now, what is it at, 1%, 0 to 1% yeah, in most lot. polls? So, right. I mean, you know, what is the last Democratic candidate who was the nominee of the Democratic Party who did not have support in the African-American community? It's just, uh, mm -hmm. that's, that's, the, that's the challenge. Now, wasn't Warren leading in your last poll in New Hampshire in the fall? Yes, she was. She was leading by a lot. Uh, she was up, uh, she had 27%, so she was ahead Ooh. of Biden by a few points. She's dropped 12 points. Uh, I think what happened with, with Elizabeth Warren, and this is the difference between her and, and Pete Buttigieg, is that Pete Buttigieg is just fresh and he can be kind of a little bit of everything. And we've, if you actually analyze his campaign over the past year, you can see that he's shifted positions. Elizabeth Warren came into this and said, my, my positions are both bold and doable. I have a plan for that, right? So her position rose, right? And all the polls showed her rising early in the fall. Because, yep. oh, I want somebody who's bold. But you also said it's doable. So now you actually have to explain to us how that's doable. And that's where she started falling apart. And also, look, you know, it goes back to that Mike Tyson thing. Everyone has a plan until they get hit. 
And Elizabeth Warren got hit. And it was that debate that happened where she was all of a sudden was the front runner. And she was in the center of the stage and everybody was taking their shots at her. And from that time to today, you just see there's, there's, there's just there's a little bit of hesitancy and you just can't afford that in this spot. OK, how about uh, Joe Biden? What do you think of uh, his chances right now? You know, Joe Biden has really, in some ways, had a really strong couple of weeks, right? I mean, he's really putting himself up there as the the alternative to Trump, you know, like I, which I think is really smart to do. He's coming. He's really punching Trump right in the nose. Um, though I just did hear something today that was a little concerning, just about where his memory was at, and that he's struggling a little bit with that. And it's a it's a concern. And if that ever does show up on the campaign trail, that'll be the end of Joe Biden. So, but what do yeah, you think of problem. Biden? That could be problematic. Yeah, I think uh, Joe Biden has been steady. Now, as I said, he's he's been losing support in our polls, but he still remains in the top a few. And again, we're looking at New Hampshire and Iowa as the earliest polls. They are going to sort out the field. They're going to winnow the field. Joe Biden will be, unless there's something that, that, like you said, that really tanks him in the next few weeks, Joe Biden will be part of that winnowing process, which means he go. we go on to Nevada and South Carolina. And as you said, we're looking at a more diverse electorate. And that's where Joe Biden has his strength. Yeah, he'll be quite strong. Now, Bernie Sanders, really, ever since the heart attack, and we talked about this on the show, that heart attack was the best thing that could have happened to him, not only making him stronger and more sympathetic, but really making him stronger, younger, uh, more present. But what do you see with Sanders right now? Yeah, I, th- I think so too. And I-, I mentioned this before that there is this talk about this overlap between Sanders and Biden supporters right now. And it's, it's funny, I got a call from a reporter uh, to ask me about what I see in the data that would support that. And then I saw another from a di- an entirely different reporter, a story on this today, which is basically the Biden folks are afraid of Sanders. The Sanders folks are, are, are looking to peel off Biden supporters. And I think part of it is because they figure they can't take off any more of Elizabeth Warren supporters. Not um, yet. Based, based, on the, based on ideology. You know, liberal supporters of, of Elizabeth Warren are with her. Liberal supporters of Bernie Sanders are with him. There's not a, a lot that's going to move them. However, but it's, that, it's if, that working okay. class. It's that working class folk. But if that's Warren going to fight falls for out, if Warren falls out, then all of a sudden Bernie Sanders has the most individual contributors, has a tremendous amount of money and is authentic, authentic, authentic. Yes. Yep. He's, he And could be a big danger to the Democratic Party. A big yes, I, I agree with you that you keep an eye on Sanders. Okay, anybody else in the field uh, that you feel is worth keeping an eye on? Well, you know, uh, Yang is down to three percent, so it it seems as if the Yang gang is just not so strong. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard, if in your poll, is at four percent along with Tom Steyer, and I don't get Steyer at all. No. I just don't. Um, Klobuchar, money, money, that's money talks, Tom Steyer. Well, we're about to talk about uh, Mr. Bloomberg, but but Klobuchar, like you said, if Biden does fall, if people are not comfortable with Buttigieg, in a way, it could be argued that Klobuchar, if she were the nominee, would have some of the best chance in some ways against President Trump, because in those battleground states, you know, that's home base for her. But we'll see what happens in Iowa. She's going to have to find her way to a higher number in Iowa to pull this off. She's the one that I am definitely keeping my eye on uh, because I think that she's even stronger in Iowa than, than what we see in this New Hampshire poll. And as I said, if, the, if one of the top four stumble, there, I think there's room for another person in that top four. And right now, she seems to be the one that's best positioned. I think Andrew Yang... Uh, his ideas are really good um, and interesting, but it just hasn't won him support. Bloomberg, Mayor Bloomberg is spending money 
like only a ridiculous billionaire can spend. Um, I, I still think that Bloomberg has a future because of a convention that could be split. What are you seeing with Bloomberg? I just don't. I don't think the convention is going to be split. I mean, it could be. It could be. And I'll, bet you I'll, 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 okay, I'll take the bet. Uh, I think what we're going to do is we're going to have four candidates coming out of Iowa and New Hampshire. And I think we're going to have two or three candidates coming out of Nevada and South Carolina. And of those three, I think that voters are going to say, hey, I like one of these three. I'll go towards one of these three. And there won't be room for Bloomberg by the time we get to Super Tuesday. Uh, so wow. I, I just, no. that's, no. Hey, that's my, that's my thinking is that here's that, my theory. Let me, let me get this in because we only got a few more seconds. Bloomberg. Here's my hope is that Bloomberg stays in long enough to spend enough money, $2 billion that, so he thinks to himself, look, I'm not going to be the nominee maybe, but it's still worth me investing more because I don't just want this to be sunk cost and we got to get Donald Trump out of the office. I, I that's kind of my hope. All right. So uh, how about, you know, looking ahead to November, uh, what I know you had come up with a strategy uh, that you think on how to beat Trump. So why don't you talk about that? You know, I was I really was quite sick over the break and uh, was hallucinating at different times of 103 fever. But at one point I thought this to myself, the place to look towards is white women without a college education, moms. And the question I think that should be asked by the Democrat is, is this really how you want your child to grow up in a world of this? And as a mother of boys, would you want your son to grow up to be like the president? And would you want your daughter to marry a man like this? That question to me is a, is a moral question, which goes in a way back to the, um, the question of character a virtuous life that we used as the quote today for George Washington. And this question of virtue, I think should be the Democrats should be something. Well, I just had, let me ask you in the time we have left, do you think that there's value here? Um, I don't know. Uh, it's interesting because if you just look at white voters and their opinion of Donald Trump, you have really three groups of voters. You have white women with a college degree, anti-Trump, white men without a college degree, pro-Trump. And then in between, you have two groups together, white men with a college degree, white women without a college education. And they are potentially flippable, although for very different reasons. So uh, let's see. Let's see if anybody tries that. Okay. So what happens when you only have 60 seconds? Let's talk about Brexit. What now? Yeah, what now indeed? Okay, so um, for folks who have been following, there was an election in Britain. There's a new prime minister. We've been talking about this. Brexit is set for January 31st, although that doesn't mean they're going to totally drop out of everything and there's still negotiations. But what I've seen, and the rumblings are, that the election shifted the balance of power both in Northern Ireland and in Scotland. Uh, Northern Ireland, of course, is, is the big Brexit uh, uh, bailiwick there because of the border. But what I've been seeing in Scotland is that the folks in Scotland are now saying, hey, when we voted against separating from the UK back in 2015, you promised us we would still be in Europe. Now that we're not going to be in Europe, we demand another independence re a referendum. So I think we could be see seeing the breakup of the UK because of this. Well, and we're also seeing Harry and uh, Meghan. Are yeah, I think away. I think that's right. That's the biggest indicator, right? Is that they are leaving as senior members of the royal family. That I think is the thin end of the wedge, right there. It's it's a, that's an it's actually an interesting story that's going to be around for a while because that's that's a messy situation. The Crown season seven is going to be fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's let's move on to our Guardian of the Week, and I proposed this man, this person. 
um, with with an open heart to that it might not go. But then we both agreed that, yeah, let's go with Senator Mike Lee, right. who we've discussed earlier. So remember, our guardian of Lee is, is supposed to be somebody who puts their own personal uh, political fortunes aside to defend the republic. And while we can probably make an argument that Lee did not undermine himself politically in his statements this week, I think the fact, and he could change his mind tomorrow about what he said, right? right? Yeah. The fact that he did it in that way, so clearly saying that this is just, that this type of explanation is unacceptable. And more specifically, not just the explanation about why this was done, but more specifically trying to take away the war powers of Congress and his defense of that using the Federalist Papers, among many other things, it, it said, hey, we might be seeing something different in the arguments that are coming out of uh, Republicans right now. They might be see, starting to see that if we let this go on, that there, there is going to be a point of no return, that we won't be able to get our Constitution back. And I think for pointing that out and taking guff for pointing that out, taking a lot of crap for pointing that out, I think Senator Mike Lee, at least for this week, yeah. deserves, <laughs> deserves some guardian props. That's what I wanted to say. He's the guardian. Usually we say the guardian of the week. Uh, I, I, I think we should go with he is the guardian of this week because who knows what he's going to do next week. But for this week... That's, that is the example that we all need to follow in this country of standing up for what's right and standing up for this republic as long as we have it. Yep. All right. So that's it for this week's edition of Guardians of the Republic. If you have any suggestions for a George Washington quote or specifically for a Guardian of the Week in your neighborhood, uh, please reach out to us on Twitter at uh, Guardians OTR. And please make sure to subscribe to get the latest episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating so others can find us. And check out our website at guardians-republic.com. Thanks for joining us, and we will be back with another episode next week. And I will have a new microphone. See ya. See ya.